Okay, before we enter the text this evening, I want to invite you to take out a pen or a pencil, a piece of paper to write on. Um, you could use your bulletin. There's notes there, scratch paper. You could use your smartphone. I don't really care. I've got one thing I want to ask you to write down. What is Jesus showing me this evening? What is Jesus showing me this evening? In case you didn't get that, what is Jesus showing me this evening? It is my conviction and the conviction of the first apostles and the conviction of the church throughout history that when the word of God is proclaimed, something happens. When the written word is proclaimed, the living word, Jesus, shows up. He speaks. He speaks today just like he spoke in the flesh. I'm encouraging in this to, to, to pay attention to Jesus, to what he has to say for two main reasons. The first is just because if you come here on a regular basis, you hear the word of God on a regular basis, and I don't ever want it just to get routine. So partly this is for me and for a reminder to you to be expectant. To expect to hear from Jesus whenever the word is proclaimed. Okay, that's, that's a good reason in itself. The second reason is that the particular passage that we're looking at tonight is the culmination uh, of a whole section in scripture we've been looking at since January. We've been looking at Matthew chapters 8 and 9 and, and tonight is the end of chapter 9 and it's the big reveal, if you will. It's, it's the what's been going on, what's the big idea behind these, these two complete chapters. So I want you to Pay attention to what Jesus might be saying to you. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 27 through 38. Keep in mind, right before this passage, Jesus has healed the woman who had been uh, sick for 12 years, and he raised the synagogue leader's little girl from the dead. All right? As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited or beat down like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers 
into his harvest. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not just a story about you, but it is a record of you, of your sayings, of your deeds, and that we believe, Lord, as it is proclaimed that you meet with us. Open our ears. Open our eyes to experience you. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray for your ministry in the Word. Please, please don't let these words fall on fallow ground, on calloused hearts, on stubborn minds. Help us to receive it and let it grow into us and out of us. Change us. Amen. You may be seated. So, in January, we began our journey in Matthew chapter 8. And since that beginning, up until this point, we have seen Jesus perform eight mighty deeds. He heals a leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He calms the storm with a word. He casts out demons from two men in Gentile territory. He forgave and healed the paralytic. He healed the sick woman and raised a little girl from the dead. Eight mighty deeds. And here in this section, we are going to witness Jesus performing mighty deed number nine and mighty deed number ten. Each of these healings, mind you, has enough material for complete sermons in itself, but I'm not going to focus necessarily just on the two last healings. I'm going to focus more on what the ten healings together point to. Okay, so we're going to deal with these healings, but maybe not in as, as much depth as you would like. Sorry about that. Another sermon series, maybe five, ten years from now. Okay. So, we begin with two blind men. By the way, in the Greek, the word for blindness is tuflos. Can you say tuflos? Tuflos. Now, as you know, my wife's a dental hygienist, and so she has some things to say about tuflos and blindness. In fact, if, don't send your children to her, because sometimes she says, if you don't floss, you'll go blind. That's just an old wife's tale. It probably comes from this Greek word. You won't go blind if you don't floss, but you might have tuflos. So anyway, so tuflos is blindness. And these, these blind men approach Jesus and they cry out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Interesting, Son of David. We've not heard the public use that phrase up until this point uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And this, remember when I said there's enough material in these healings for a whole sermon? There's a whole sermon, there's a whole PhD if you want, in just that term, Son of David. But I'm going to sum it up for you like only a preacher can. And just say that Son of David was a way of saying Messiah. The expected deliverer that God would send to rescue his people. So imagine first year, first century Jewish Christian convert maybe or maybe you're a first century Jewish person who's on the fence about Jesus kind of heard about him he does some stuff but I'm not sure who he is so there you are and you're reading Matthew's gospel or you're hearing it proclaimed for the first time and one of the ironies is that the first people to call Jesus son of David or Messiah are two blind guys they're the first human beings in Matthew's narrative sections to know, to identify Jesus for who he really is. There's one other identification of who Jesus really is in the narrative, but it's not from a human. Does anyone remember who that is? The demons. 
in Matthew chapter 8. So ironic here that the religious leaders in a few more verses are going to vehemently deny Jesus, who he, who he really is. And there you are, maybe as a first listener in the first century, and you're wondering, who is this guy? And blind guys and demons seem to know who Jesus really is. It begs the question, can you see? Can you see? Can you perceive what's been going on thus far? Who is Jesus? So these guys cry out to Jesus, and he seems to be walk, to keep on walking. He, he doesn't immediately just turn to them, apparently. So the idea, at least the way I read it in Scripture, is he's walking. He's leaving the house where he's just read, uh, raised the dead girl. Um, and that's created a kind of a crowd, kind of a situation. And these blind guys are following him, and they come up to him and say, Have mercy, son of David. And then it says that he walks into a house. Now, I don't know how far it was from when they said, have mercy to the house, but it's not right there. So they go into the house. The guys follow him in. They're persistent. They follow Jesus into the house. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Literally, do you trust that I have the power, have the authority to heal you. Of course, the emphasis here is undeniable. The emphasis is on Jesus, his person, and his authority to heal these blind men. You know, lots of people, when they're desperate for, for help, don't care where it comes from. I mean, have you ever had a, your car break down? Especially in maybe a, a foreign ho-dunk place like anywhere in eastern Washington. That's happened to me. Uh, when your car breaks down and you're not near your own shop, your favorite, you know, Bellingham Automotive, I love those guys. So, uh, but when you're not near your own shop and it, it, the tow truck comes and, you know, you don't care what the mechanic says. Like, sure, you need to order parts, whatever, just fix my car. i got to get out of here. Or put pixie dust in the gas tank. I don't care. Pray to the gods of internal combustion. Just get my car fixed. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just get it done. And, and for our own bodies, there are all kinds of healers in the world. A lot of us in this culture, we go to, to a doctor who has knowledge of anatomy, physiology, pathology. We trust that they'll give us the right advice about maybe drugs or the right procedure, the right diet. In other parts of the world, we would trust that the healer would give us uh, the right incantation, maybe, or the right herbs, or pray to the right spirits. All human healers re rely on some technique outside of themselves, some wider body of knowledge, some other source. But Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And when they say, yes... Yes, we do, Lord. He replies, It shall be done to you according to your faith. That's what faith in Jesus is. It's personal. It's not, do you have faith that I can help find the answer for you? It's not, do you have faith that I can use my networks or my body of knowledge to somehow find a healing for you? It's, do you have faith in me? Christian faith, by the way, is all about faith in a person, in Jesus. It's never been about faith in, in just Jesus' teachings. It's never been about faith in a philosophy. It's never about, well, they're more moral than those people, so it sounds like a nicer way to live. It's always been about faith in a person, which is why the resurrection is such a big deal. Because if there's no Jesus, 
See you later. Right? There's no, there's no Christianity without Jesus. They trust Jesus and he opens their eyes. We'll come back to that, trust me. After Jesus opens their eyes, he tells them sternly, don't tell anyone. Now why would he do that? Why would he say don't tell anyone? That is so weird. I don't know for sure. <laughs> I don't know for sure. But I suspect it's some combination of these ideas. First of all, we know that Jesus does not seek his own honor. Now you might think, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's not very selfish. That's a big deal. As I've said many times before, if you've heard me preach, I've talked about this social value in the ancient Near East called honor and shame. And I've mentioned how your honor is more important than being wealthy. It's more important than your fame. So if you had a, your iPhone and I did a crazy dance up here, uh, I could probably get on YouTube and do like Gangnam Preacher Style or something like that. And I could get famous and that would... But in Jesus' culture, that would not work out so well. Honor and shame, not fame and money or being popular on YouTube. And you were kind of born into your, your starting point with honor. If you, were, if you were born into an upper crust, you had more honor than if you were born into the lower class. But no matter where you were born into that culture, your honor could either go up or it could go down. Okay, Your honor was like your credit rating when you went around town. You didn't have to sh prove your credit score. It was just like, oh, you're an Eldridge? <laughs> you don't have very much honor here. Or, you know, you're an Ackerson. Oh, you're off the charts. You can definitely, we'll, we'll loan you these camels. We know you're good for it because you're an Ackerson. All right? So you could get your honor reduced if, for example, you had a public dispute and you lost an argument. You would lose face, we would say. In our culture, you would lose honor in that culture. That's why every time that Jesus is confronted in public by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, you might think, no big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, a first century reader reading that is on the edge of their seat looking who is losing honor and who is gaining honor. Interesting. The other way you could lose honor would be to uh, be an individual. So we're talking about a culture that's very collective, very unlike our culture. So, you know, if I came in with a new piercing with gauges or something, you might think, like, oh, he's trying to be trendy. But you wouldn't think, like, he's less of a pastor. But if Jesus came in with purple hair or something like that, his honor would be, poof, because it's all about conformity in the first century uh, ancient Near East. It's not about individuality. So women had roles, men had roles, and even if, the guys, if you're the best cook in the world, you wouldn't be caught cooking because your honor will go down from breaking the, the norms, all right? Well, one of the standard expectations, if you were a teacher or a, a, a wealthier person, it was expected that you would provide things for the general populace. So, uh, in fact, there's a picture here I want Jen to put up. Of a, um, that's, a, that's a stone from the Colosseum. When Corey and I were at the Colosseum in Rome, um, there were these ruins, and this is a seat. This is a seat at the stadium, and you'll see a, a Latin name there, and that's the name of the patron, they would call it, who donated that stone. And they're everywhere. There's almost no stones or pillars or artifacts in Greece and Rome and these places uh, without somebody's name on it. And it was expected that you would provide a fountain for your little, you know, your little villa or a, a public meeting place, and the, the bricks in the road would have names on it because the, that would give the patron honor. 
right? So when Jesus says things in the Sermon on the Mount, like don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing or give to the poor in secret, that is very countercultural. Because in that world, there's no other reason to give other than to receive honor for it. Okay, so Jesus has this, this value of, I don't want to seek my own honor. So that's one of the reasons why he probably doesn't want um, a big whoop-de-doo over his healings. A second reason is that Jesus, uh, he didn't want people blabbing about his deeds in public because it could hinder his more important ministry. In Mark's gospel, we read about a time when, when Jesus did some healings and people were blabbing about it. And he, it got so crazy with the crowds, this mob mentality. He couldn't even go to the regular cities. He couldn't travel on normal roads. He had to go the back roads and stay in the small towns. Jesus didn't want to be known just for his healings or just for his teaching. He had other ministry to do, namely gather disciples, go to the cross on his own terms, die for us, and be risen Second or third, a related reason I don't think Jesus wanted to be, to be known publicly as son of David or Messiah uh, is that he didn't want that title imposed on him. See, a lot of people had their own idea of what Messiah was or what Messiah should be, and Jesus wanted to define that for himself. So these guys are running after him. Hey, son of David, have mercy on us. He's like, come in here. <laughs> Let's go in the house and take care of this. I don't want your definitions of that to, to be impressed upon me. And fourth, I wonder if there isn't a little bit of rhetoric going on here. Jesus has just healed these two men with his authority and power. And the idea of saying, hey, don't say anything is almost like, how can we not say something? This man touched my eyes and I can see. Whatever Jesus' reason for telling the blind men to be silent, they spread the news that Jesus had opened their eyes. And now there's a crowd following him. And ironically, after the men who weren't supposed to say anything, Jesus next meets a man who can't say anything. He is mute by demon oppression. Jesus casts out the demon, and then the man could speak. And there are two reactions to this mighty deed that are revealed. First, the crowds are absolutely amazed. They say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. After the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He taught as one, as with authority, and not as their scribes. They'd never heard teaching like that before. Here they're amazed at his authority over the body and over nature, over death itself. That is amazing. The crowds are amazed. Hey, when is the last time you were amazed by something? I'm serious. It's not just, I'm not going to go on. Just a minute. When is the last time you were amazed by something? And what was it? Answer to prayer. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's the last time you're amazed by something. What if you met a man who healed incurable diseases with his word? 
What if you met a man who could control the weather by just speaking to it? That'd be amazing. What if you met a man who could raise dead people back to life? What if you met a man who with his words could control and cast out the powers of evil? What if you met a man who could do all of that stuff but still wanted to hang out with lower class people just as much as he hung out with upper class intelligent people? What if you met a man who could do all that stuff and still wanted to hang out with women just as much as he wanted to hang out with men just as much as he wanted to hang out with children? What if you met a man like that and he wanted to hang out with you? The crowds met him and they were amazed. The Pharisees met him and they were threatened. If people follow him, their thinking might lie. He, they won't follow us. If we follow him, we've got to change our lives and our lives aren't that bad right now. If we follow him, then our religion is going to look different. And we like doing religion the way we do it. The Pharisees met this man and insulted him by saying that his power actually came from the Satan, the accuser, the leader of the dark forces. What if you met the man who preached the Sermon on the Mount and lived the Sermon in the Valley in chapters 8 and 9? What if you met that man and he looked at you and said, follow me? Well, you have met him, of course, and his name is Jesus. How will you respond? What is Jesus saying to you this evening? Hold that thought, because this is about to get better. Matthew tells us in verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. So he's teaching, and he's proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness now of course this is an important little detail because uh, Jesus just gets attacked by being in league with the Satan and he just goes on teaching that's pretty cool you know what sometimes you're going to meet opposition just keep keep going keep following Jesus uh, it tells us what Jesus was doing. You know, he was teaching. He was proclaiming. There's a difference. You know, I'm, I'm kind of teaching up here, but I'm more preaching. And preaching is a proclamation of good news. I'm not trying to really convince you of anything. I'm telling you. <laughs> the Bible says this. And then on Thursday nights when I'm teaching the Simply Christian class, we're in more dialogue about it. And we're teaching some principles, right? So there's, he was teaching, and he was proclaiming, and he was healing. But haven't we heard words like that before in this gospel? Check this out. Matthew 4, 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That is almost the same words. Isn't that interesting? This repetition in speech, in rhetoric, or in writing is called an inclusio. Can you say inclusio? Yes, and it's, it's, a, it's a reminder, like when you're giving a long speech, it's a verbal cue 
oh yeah, I'm, that helps me remember what you were talking about before. And in writing, it kind of helps tie things together. You might think of bookends. And the inclusio means, oh, he's, he's, at, the, he's at the end of a thought. We, we've, we've been preaching through these, these couple of chapters. Well, and if you include Matthew 4, 5, 6, and 7, we've been preaching through that for two years. And the inclusio draws us back and says, oh, from 423... To 9.35, that's all one big idea that Matthew's developing. That's really cool. And what is the big idea? The big idea is that Jesus knows his people. He knows us. He has compassion on us. The big idea is that Jesus does all of this stuff that he does, the healings and the teachings and the casting out and the calming of storms, he does all of that because he loves us. You know, this story about Jesus is not a story of an alien with superpowers coming to the earth and kicking all the bad guys' butts. That's Superman, by the way. That's not the gospel. This isn't a story about a distant God coming to earth and giving everyone hugs and being tolerant. Jesus' love and his ministry is always, always, always contextual. He's not an alien visitor who just shows up. He's not like the annoying friends Job had that when he was going through a hard time gave him all this advice but never listened. Jesus' ministry is contextual. He is totally in line with God's work throughout history and in particular God's work throughout the people of Israel. Now, when God rescued Israel from captivity in Egypt, he did so by choosing this guy Moses and working through Moses to lead. And Moses, of course, with God's help, leads that people out of slavery into where? The wilderness. And he's there for 40 years. 40 years. Now the people were stubborn and continually grumbling and no one from Moses' generation... They wandered in the desert for 40 years, but no one from that generation made it into the promised land. All right. Matthew wants us to, show, he wants to show us something. Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew 4. And where does the Spirit of God lead him? Into the wilderness. For how long was he there? For 40 days. And he fasts those 40 days. And he's tempted by Satan. Jesus was tempted in all ways, just like Israel in the desert, but he did not give in. He didn't give in. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel was supposed to be God's chosen doorway for the nations, now Jesus, the consummate Israelite, not a replacement for Israel, the consummate Israelite, he is now the door through which the nations can come to the living God. Amen? It's okay. I know we're we're Bellingham, city of subdued excitement. Okay. Now, when the crowds of people were bickering and they were lost and confused, God saw them in the desert and he sent Moses up on a mountain and he gave Moses the law to help train his people, to help give them hope, to help give them structure, to help give them good news. When Jesus in Matthew 5 saw the crowds, he too went up on a mountain. He too, like Moses, did something with some law. 
But unlike Moses, he didn't just receive law from God and then relay it. He began to teach and expound on the law and show God's heart behind the law and illuminate the law and fulfill the law. And Jesus spoke on that Sermon on the Mount, up on a mountain, as one with authority. A better Moses. When Jesus came down from the mountain in chapter 8, crowds followed him. And he began to practice in the valleys of life what he preached on the mountaintop. Like, as you know, you don't just live life on the mountaintop. You don't just live life on Sunday. You have to go do the regular stuff in the valley. The people that he ministered to, they were without loving and effective leadership. And he longed to set them free from captivity. Now, when Moses brought the people out from captivity, what did he do? How did God do that? He allowed Moses to perform ten mighty deeds before Pharaoh. It happened to be ten plagues. They were not good deeds. When Jesus comes down from the mountain and wants to set captives free, he performs ten mighty deeds of deliverance and authority. And unlike the plagues of Moses, these mighty deeds include including outsiders, setting captives free, calming storms of nature, and calming storms of the Spirit. <clears throat> Jesus opens blind eyes and casts out the demons of muteness. You know, even after Moses led the people out of captivity, even after mighty King David, the people of Israel kept slipping, just like we do. And they turned to idols. Um, idols could be wood, wood little figurines. Sometimes they were overlaid with precious metals. Sometimes they were stone. But the thing about an idol is it's just an inanimate object. And the people knew that. They didn't think that the idol was actually a god. What they did think was that there was these gods all around. And if they said the right incantations, that the spirit of those other gods would come to somehow dwell in this little idol. Even though it couldn't really see, and couldn't really speak, and couldn't really hear, and couldn't really move. And in different places in scripture, Psalm 115, for one, Jeremiah, Katie read earlier, God warns the people, man, you go after those idols, people, you're going to become like them. And what happens is you're going to be walking around, but you're not really going to be able to see. And you're not really going to be able to hear. And the things that you say, you might as well not speak at all. You're going to be numb and hard from me. It's going to be worse than death. You go after idols, you'll become like those idols. That's exactly what happens but God, in Isaiah 35, promised one day that he would come rescue the people. And you know what he says that's going to be like? He says, when I come, I'm going to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and loosen mute tongues. Why would he say those things? Because there's too many deaf people in the world and too many blind people? I'm sure that that's coming with the kingdom as well, those physical healings. This is so much more, people, than just physical healing. So this is, this is a promise to undo what we've done to ourselves by going after false gods that lead to death. 
So what does it mean about Jesus if when he comes, he does these things, unstopping ears and loosing tongues and opening blind eyes? What does it say about Jesus if he does the things that God, Yahweh, was supposed to do? Jesus taught the crowds, proclaimed the good news to the crowds, healed and set free the crowds, and had compassion on the crowds. And he said, I feel compassion for them, this visceral, my heart's breaking. Because these, these people, look at them, disciples, look at them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. <laughs> sheep are dumb. You got any people out there with animals, uh, they are dumb. They will actually like just die without help. <laughs> They'll lay down on the wrong side of a hill and they just won't get up. They, they can't find water half the time. I mean, they're stupid. I, I'm one of them and I need a good shepherd. And he's saying, look, these people are out there and I feel compassion for them. And this Jesus, this amazing Jesus, the one who's calling us to follow, he doesn't just come out of the blue. He's not that annoying person. He, he has compassion that's deeply rooted in the human story, in God's story, and, and this is good news, in your story. He knows you. He knows you. He knows that you struggle to believe. And he knows right now you're saying, yeah, I was baptized and I'm a partner at Leonard Streets and I hope nobody knows that I struggled to believe. He knows. He knows. He knows you doubt your worth. He knows you doubt your purpose. Am I in the right job? Am I doing the right things with my money? Are my kids going to follow Jesus? Am I doing anything right? He knows all that. He knows you think those thoughts. He knows you do those things when people aren't looking. He knows that the pastor of this church and you are not qualified. And he says, come follow me. And when you begin to follow him, when you really place your trust in him, when you start those baby steps of obedience, something happens. And you know, when you first started following, you know what I'm talking about. You start to feel a little more human. You start to, to have a little more spring in your step. You might have lost it. I struggle with that. You might have lost it. But you know what I'm talking about. When you first start, you begin to be a little more alive. Something happens. And before, here's the good news, church. Before you become a perfect person... Any, anyone out there already there? Hey, I'm, not, I'm not either. Before you become a perfect person, Jesus authorizes you. He says, I deputize you. I authorize you to join you in my work. And here's what he commands. Get ready. No, I'm just kidding. There's not a lot to write. Here's what he commands. He says to his disciples, all of us who follow him, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So... What? Pray. Isn't that crazy? Jesus very rarely tells us what to pray. I mean, you got the, the Lord's Prayer, or the, you know, in the, 
Our Father who is in heaven. We've got that one. It's a great thing to pray. There's not a lot of places in the Bible where Jesus tells us to pray or what to pray for. But here he tells us very specifically, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. Not pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send people to sow seeds. Or pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would uh, tell people to fertilize the crops. Like they need fertilization or they need pesticides. They need to be told this or done that. They, They don't need to be messed with. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. Because guess what? There are crops of people out there dying on the vine. They're ripe for the good news. That somebody loves them. That they have a purpose. That God created them. And it's not rocket science. You're qualified to join in praying for this. And something crazy just might happen if you start praying that prayer. You might realize, oh boy, I might be one of those workers. I might be one of those workers. That's a sermon for after Easter. Jennifer Thomas is going to pick this up in chapter 10 after Easter. Um, So what's Jesus showing you this evening? Is it his compassionate character? Is it his thoughtfulness in how he comes, contextually, knowing you? Is it his power and his lordship over all things? Is it his amazing call that he would choose you and me to join him in this work? Is he showing you a conviction to pray for workers? What is Jesus showing you this evening? He's speaking through his word. I'm going to invite you to a time of silent reflection. Maybe it's an acknowledgement of what Jesus is showing you. Maybe he's reminding you of something he's been showing you for a long time. And you need to repent of not listening.